Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. As you listeners might well be aware, we are so excited to announce the continuation of our newest series called CR Classics, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history. And as tennis fans, we all know there are so many great matches littered throughout a calendar season. There are so many significant individual performances that deserve to be discussed. And the reason we launched this series is to get the chance to do just that, to go back in time, talk about the most significant matches from tennis. Tennis's past, talk about, you know, the outcomes that we think have maybe defined a generation of tennis players or certainly the ones that captured the attention, captured the imaginations of fans uh, the most throughout tennis's history. And in doing this exercise, what's been really fun for me is to have a chance to experience matches I may have never seen before. I was born in 1995, and yes, I've been watching tennis my whole life, but Really, prior to 2005, 2006, uh, I can't say I have a you know a perfect knowledge of a perfect memory of what happened in all of these Grand Slam events prior to um, me really being involved, me really stepping up my fandom in the sport. So it's been a really fun exercise to get to go back in time and watch some matches I may not have previously seen. And that's what we did for today's CR Classic. We're going to be talking about a match from the 2001 Wimbledon. It's a semifinal match between Pat Rafter and Andre Agassi. And for those of you who don't know about that match, it was their third straight contest at Wimbledon. Agassi had won in 99. Rafter had beaten him in 2000. So this was a really important match. It was a significant one in their personal rivalry for Pat Rafter, the 0-1 Wimbledon. Ends up being his last Wimbledon. Rafter's a guy who had so much success there over the course of his career. And so, you know, his career sort of also ended abruptly. I don't know if anyone really knew for certain that 0-1 would be his last ride uh, and that it was that he ends up making it to the semifinals playing this match against Andre. No spoilers yet. If, like me, you're coming into this one blind, you haven't seen seen the highlights before uh, I don't want to ruin it for you but it makes it, it adds an extra piece of the to the dynamic of this match so certainly something to keep in mind and of course 01 Andre Agassi that's a different beast uh that's a guy who's at the post prime of his career but he's on the comeback tour and he's certainly playing good tennis once again so it set the stage for a phenomenal match and joining me on today's podcast to talk about that is a guy you may know uh, from his work doing the Monday match analysis show on YouTube his work for WAER and Z89 Sports he also does plenty of work uh, for the Syracuse Athletic Department I today am joined by Gil Gross and for just another fun fact for you guys I actually this was a home and home I went and joined 
and Gill on his show, Monday uh, morning match, or I should say Monday morning, Monday match analysis, excuse me, on YouTube. And we talked about the 09 U.S. Open final between Federer and Del Potro, and Gill does so much great work on that Monday match analysis show. If you haven't, go check it out on YouTube. Just search Monday match analysis, and you'll get to see what was a really fun affair as well. We went, I think, similar length to what this podcast is also. I also want to mention, again, if you haven't yet, you can find these CR Classics in video form with highlights of the matches, of the points we're talking about, uh, weaved in. You go to our YouTube channel, Cracked Rackets, you'll get to see my smiling face, you'll get to see Gil's smiling face, you'll get to see all of the creative uh, processes and all of the creative work our super producer Daniel Westoff does in developing these videos. It's a really fun thing, and I think you'll all very much enjoy it, so be sure to go check out our YouTube series, uh, check out the YouTube video, excuse me, of this series, uh, because both this one and the Djokovic Federer one I did with Jamie McDonald are phenomenal products, and I think you'll all really enjoy them. One last thing, and then I promise we'll get to the show. Have to give a shout out to the people who make these shows possible, and it's a new sponsor here at our Great Shot Podcast, but we want to give a huge thank you to our friends at Midwest Sports, because for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers. They've got an online tennis store with a tennis warehouse of over 40,000 square feet, and what does that mean? It means they're able to offer a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They have one of the largest in-stock in inventories of tennis equipment with tens of thousands of products available for shipping from their uh, automated warehouses. And of course, they value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. Their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with all of their equipment and are sure to be able to help you find that perfect tennis racket, that perfect tennis shoe, the perfect tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of your competition. So you're wondering to yourself, how can I get in on the action? You go to their website, MidwestSports.com. You can go visit them on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube as well to learn about their latest sales and discounts on tennis supplies. And you're going to find stuff that you enjoy now, even better for you cracked fans out there. If you use our promo code right now, CR15, you'll get 15% off of your order and all orders over $75 come with free shipping. So there's a lot of incentives, folks. We all still have tennis needs. And no, we're not able to get on the court right now because we're all doing the safe and healthy route. We are all doing what we have to do to get over this self-quarantining period. Uh, But certainly if you're hitting around the house or you need balls, you're wanting to explore new rackets, you need new shoes, you go to MidwestSports.com, you use our promo code CR15, you'll get all of your needs fulfilled by a great staff, the best in the business who know exactly what they're doing. So MidwestSports.com, the promo code is CR15. Get yourself involved in the action right now. Speaking of the action, with all of that being said, Let's get to today's episode of CR Classics talking about the 2001 Wimbledon semifinals between Andre Agassi and Patrick Rafter.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on today's episode of CR Classics, you may recognize his series, the Monday Match Analysis, with his beautiful background on video on YouTube, his work for WAER Sports for the Syracuse Athletic Program. Gil Gross, welcome to the, or I should say, hey, great shot. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been uh, enjoying some of your more recent pods hitting a tennis ball against my garage and hoping I don't do uh, irreparable damage. Uh, I feel like it's inevitable for all of us. You're going to crack a drywall. You're going to just chip something. And if you're not, you should probably reconsider what sport you're playing because at that point, we're all so pent up. You, you know, that's just tennis, right? It would normally be unacceptable to hit the ball <laughs> against the garage, but it's like, what, what am I going to do? No, it's, uh, so I'm no longer living at home. But if I had a dime for every time I was sitting against the garage and my dad came out, I was like, Alex, stop it. Like, it's just a banging noise or whatever. And nowadays, I was talking to him. And he's like, yeah, you know, your little brother was hitting against the garage and it was fine. I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, this is just a double standard du jour. Um, but uh, again, rather safe than sorry. So I got over it. And, you know, I, I have to ask from the top, obviously, before we get into any podcast, how are you doing? All is well with you? I know you're in New York. That's obviously a hot spot, but you're staying safe. Yeah, staying safe. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, you know, it, it wears on you a little bit, but I got to say, uh, watching a tennis match that I admittedly didn't know the result of when I started it, it, it felt like a, a bit of a return to normalcy. It felt like I was on my couch watching live tennis, didn't know what was going to happen, and, and uh, that made me feel better. So that is great news to hear because we were the, the way this podcast got started, just so our listeners go, you and I were corresponding over uh, Twitter in the DMs as so many things happen nowadays. And I said, hey, do you want to come on for a CR Classic? You're like, sure. What match would it be? And I said, I don't know. Why don't you like feel what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Because I wanted to change things up. I, I am so trapped. And, you know, you and I are similar age, but we grew up in the 2010s. Those were our formative years. And so so, mon- so many of our tennis memories revolve around Serena chasing slams, the big three, big four doing their thing on the ATP tour. And so when you suggested the topic for today's match, the 2001 Wimbledon men's semifinal between Pat Rafter and Andre Agassi, it put an immediate smile on my face. I was just like, I, ha- I, I, it was oh, the first match in a long time and I texted you this immediately, DM'd whatever the nomenclature is, and I was like, I don't know the result of this match off of my head, and that you immediately sent me a full link, or a link to the full match on YouTube. It was on from then. I agree. It it added to the thrill. It's one of those, you know, given that we're not going to see live tennis for a while, it was so refreshing to watch a match that I didn't know the ending to. Absolutely. Shout out to Laura B. on Twitter, who recommended this match. I've been... <laughs> I've been trying to ask the uh, I've been trying to ask people who know better what old matches are worth going back uh, to look at. So shout out to Laura B. 
Yeah, and again, that's a pros pro right there, getting the plugs out out of the way early, um, and you know that's just you love to see that always. And yeah, shout out to her because this was a fascinating match, and obviously, what we're going to be doing on these CR Classics is talking about some of the best tennis matches in history. We'll set the scene. We'll talk about the commentators' notes. We'll you know break down the biggest points, biggest moments each set, and talk about the aftermath and you know where we have to start. Let's set the scene on this match, and again. It's the 2001 Wimbledon semifinal between Patrick Rafter and Andre Agassi. And for those of you who don't know, you know, what was going on in 2001, what was going on for me, I was five years old, turning six later in the year. Obviously, this is, you know, as a cultural impact in America, this match happened before 9-11, just for some perspective. And so that's how long ago it was in reality. You know, that's over 19, or it's 19 years, this Wimbledon, uh, since this match was played. That's almost a full Alex, almost a full growth. Uh, Gilgross. So uh, this one, you know, it's stylistically, uh, it's a different than what you're used to seeing now, certainly. And even let's start with the definition of the quality of the broadcast. It's not HD. And I'm not trying to be a snob, but I was a child of the 2010s. I cannot imagine growing up having to watch grass tennis, a green tennis ball on that green court with just the, uh, the graphics the way they were, Gil. That threw me off from the beginning. Yeah, it was really hard to see the ball. I mean, just straight up, if it was traveling too quickly, you just weren't really going to see it. And, you know, the lines calls, especially on the far side, it was better on the near side. But a lot of the times, you know, Andre would try to hit a backhand pass down the line. And my concept of is it in or out, I'm just waiting to hear the lines judge because I can't actually (laughs) see. And there was no shot spot either, right? There were times, and we'll get into it, where Agassi gets a little frustrated with a particular line judge. And I will also say on this call for the commentators, it was a young John McEnroe. And he was locked in. If this was the McEnroe we got nowadays, there would be so much less criticism. I'm not going to say he doesn't push the envelope in terms of some of his humor. Uh, you know, they talk about Justine Ennen at times, and you're just you're cringing a little bit. But at the same time, this is a much more aware, you know, much more just present, focused was a word you used when we were talking about this beforehand. John McEnroe, and, you know, I think it was Ted Robinson, I believe, in the booth with him. Uh, and they were really good commentating team and it was on NBC the graphics we'll talk about them they are hilarious as well Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the players now and let's start in setting the scene with Andre Agassi you look at Andre Agassi and what he accomplished at the front half of the 2001 season, and we're not going to recap all the way back to, yeah, he, you know, the wig was gone, uh, the hair was gone, he's bald now. Um, but we will take it back to, obviously, after that 90, 1996 layoff, he had come back, he had won uh, the French Open, I believe, that year. The first time he won it was 90, uh, or 99, excuse me, that was his return. So, you know, he had won the U.S. Open since then. He had won Wimbledon, or he he had made the semifinals of Wimbledon since then. He won 2000-2001 Australian Open, finaled, uh, as I mentioned, the 99 Wimbledon. But you, you look at his start to 2001, 
it, it, we get spoiled now because we watch Djokovic rip off a 42-0 and zero, uh, 42-0 start to the 2011 season. And now for us, that's the standard we set for, okay, that's a good start. But Andre Agassi at age 31 was 33-6 and six on the year entering the match. He had won Australia, as I mentioned. For the first time in his career, he won the Sunshine Double. He won Indian Wells, Miami back-to-back. He made the finals of San Jose, uh, made the French Open quarterfinals, struggled on clay in general. But he, it was a hot start to his season. And so, you know, you, I'll talk about the slams in a little bit. But, uh, you know, prime Agassi. This may not have been exactly it. 99 may have been a little bit better. But this was damn near close to it. Yeah, and people were really, really confused because he was – was he 30 or 31? 31. 31. This had not happened before. I mean, literally people were confused and he was Federer, and you know I don't want to single out Federer because boy, Nadal and Djokovic are aging beautifully so far as well. But he was Federer before Federer, where it's like, wait, why is he getting better? But that's what Agassi did, and the reason he got better is because he actually focused on his fitness. Funny how that happens. Yeah, and I actually would. So I, the comparison in terms of career size, I completely agree with you. I, I will talk about Agassi and his striking similarities playing-wise to Novak Djokovic. I think that's one of my biggest takeaways from this match is, you know, he walked so Djokovic could run. Um, but, yeah, you talk about Agassi. He had made the semifinals of a major in six or better in six of his last nine appearances at slams. That's the best stretch of his career since 1988 to 1991 where he made six and seven eight and 11. He also made six and nine from 94 to 96. But yeah, I I had mentioned, you know, again, he had won three slams during this, four slams, excuse me, during this stretch of his career. More importantly, this was his third straight Wimbledon semifinal, right? He made that final in 99 before losing to Sampras. He had made the semifinals the year before, but the guy who knocked him off in those 2000 semifinals, Patrick Rafter. And let's set the scene in terms of him coming into this match. You talk about it, for Patrick Rafter. He was only 28. And in theory, on paper, again, without context, you think, oh, he's the younger player. But this was the last season of Patrick Rafter's career. He had had the shoulder surgery in 1999, and any sort of surgery 20 years ago isn't going to have the same result that it does today. Um, but, you know, it, it was one of the storylines the commentators hit on repeatedly as well, that he had talked all season long, is this going to be his last full year on tour? Does he really want to tolerate all of the pain and whatnot? Uh, but he had been rock solid coming into this event. He was 27-10. and 10. Uh, He had made semifinals of Australia, quarterfinals. Finals Indian Wells, semifinals Miami, semifinals in Hala on one of his grass warm-up events. And again, this was her, his third straight semifinal at a Wimbledon. And who had he faced the previous two years? Andre Agassi. So that Rafter was number 10 in the world coming into this tournament, but was seeded number three by Wimbledon. Again, with context, that didn't shock me. Did it shock you, Gil? No, I mean, uh, but, you know, the commentators even mentioned that Rafter was the biggest beneficiary of the Wimbledon uh, seeding formula where they give they give um, a little boost to the players who are stronger on grass and vice versa for the players who are weaker on grass. So everyone knew that Rafter was going to be dangerous on the surface, had had made the semifinal the year prior, had made the semifinal in Australia as well. Uh, so, I mean, Rafter was a factor, but but also dealing with this shoulder. So he was kind of a ticking time bomb. 
Yeah, and for Patrick Rafter, he hadn't won a tournament in over a year. The last title was in uh, the Netherlands on grass in June of 2000. He'd made two finals only in that stretch of time uh, between then and Wimbledon. You also look at his twenty uh, his 2011, his 2001 results, excuse me, uh, and he blew match points in his first round of match of the French Open after being up uh, on Wayne Arthurs. He also cramped out after having a two sets to one lead over Agassi in the Australian Open semifinals that year. He had lost four of his last five five set matches, the you know, the one win coming against Agassi in the two thousand semifinal. And again, retirement was clearly on his mind. But as you mentioned, just watching him play, if you haven't seen Pat Rafter, big serve. He's going to serve in volley. A uh, big windy forehand that's better on the run than I think it is stable. You know, he's going to backhand slice you to death. He's going to chip return and follow it into the net. His game, as you mentioned, was tailor-made for uh, the grass surface. And, you know, you, you look at this, as you mentioned, he's the three seed here. Um, but for Agassi and Rafter, this was their, I believe, third meeting on the year in terms of 2001. Uh, Agassi had won that five-set match in Australia. He also knocked him out 6-0, in the Miami semifinals. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, he, they played the year before as well as 1999. Agassi was 9-4 against Rafter heading into this match, so there were no secrets between them. Agassi was also 4-2 and two at the slams over Rafter, so you know both those guys know the adjustment it takes. Coming into the match, I think that's the takeaway. Agassi, pro- not prohibitive, but certainly the favorite to uh, to start this one. The favorite, but also Rafter comes in. It's the rubber match, right? Because Agassi won two years prior in the Wimbledon semi, and then Rafter wins uh, one year prior in a really, really good five-set match. And by the way, one, I think one, I don't think you mentioned it. Apologies if I'm repeating what you just said. But he was also up a set and a break uh, poss- um, on Pete Sampras in the final mm-hmm. and literally admitted, I choked. So there was this kind of so close yet so far thing going on with Rafter where he'd be right there and he just wasn't pulling through. So this was his last Wimbledon. It was it, you know, kind of this this moment where it's, are you going to do this? You got one more chance. And I feel like because of that, all bets were off in this matchup, uh, but Agassi, with the year that he had been having, was probably the slight favorite. Yeah, I'm not going to say this is our first disagreement, but I'm trying to create a little co- uh, conflict between us because I feel like it'll make for a better kapat as we go on. Um, but, you know, yeah, I... Here's why Agassi has to be considered the prohibitive favorite entering this one. Again, I I don't have to read through the stats, but he won in Australia. He won the Sunshine Double. Yes, you know, Rafter had knocked him off in five sets the year before, but Rafter was just not the same player. He clearly kept diminishing his peak 97-98 seasons. He was fine in 99, still fine by 2000, but towards the end of 2001, or at least through the first half of 2001, he was not the same player uh, that he was was the year prior. And that's just why, given Agassi's form, uh, and especially, you know, we can get into it here, getting into this first set, uh, that Rafter ends up, no spoilers, but that Rafter fights the way he does in this set, or in this match, we'll say, it shocked me. Especially, again, because I'm I'm influenced by the commentators as well. McEnroe uh, seemed as convinced as I did at points of this match that it was all Agassi, because there were times when the disparity between the two were that big. But 
again, we want to talk about the match. Let's talk next um, about, you know, just quickly what some of these other storylines were to set the scene. Just because, again, it's 2001. Some of these are pretty funny. Uh, This is the comedy portion of it. Some of these storylines. One of the things the commentators harp on. Justine Ennin. First breakthrough slam event for her. Uh... Yeah, that you know, McEnroe says she's shocked by uh, some of her results in her one-handed backhand. Again, boy, was he wrong about that one. Um, but, you know, I learned for the first time her mom died when she was young, and the dad walked away. The relationship wasn't great. And, you know, these are just the little factoids. Going back, it was interesting to hear that. Of course, a big takeaway from the 0-1 Wimbledon. Federer knocked off Sampras in five sets in the quarterfinals. It was the first time Roger Federer was seated at a slammer. I don't know if it was quarterfinals. It might have been round of 16. Uh, um, round of 16. And yeah, then, round of- And then Federer lost in the next round to Tim Henman. Yeah in the quarterfinals if, if you actually look at 2001 Wimbledon it's got to be up there for maybe one of the greatest slams of all time if you just look at how much intrigue factor there was with Henman the Brit trying to be Fred Perry um, he makes it to the semifinals he plays Goran uh, even Isevich loses it and then you have the epic semi that we're about to get into between Agassi and Rafter but I think Sampras going down was absolutely massive here. It's like when it's like when Rafa loses at the French and everyone is like, okay, this is this is the chance to get one. Yeah, and which I think is that ra- happened at Wimbledon. I was going to say, which is why you see Goran and Andre and Tim all making these and Ra- Pat Rafter obviously making these runs after he falls in because it's like this is my chance. He had been just so locked into this event. You're absolutely right. It's like how Federer got the one after Soderling knocked out Nadal. He just capitalized on the moment. Um, but yeah, looking at this 2001 Wimbledon, you talked about it earlier. First time they expanded to 32 seeds. And with that expansion, 11 seeds were upset. In the first round, again, 11 seeds, the 12 seed, 14, 16, 17, 22, 25, 28, 29, 31, 32, and 34, uh, two seeds ended up uh, withdrawing before the tournament. But let me just give you the equivalent. That would have meant at this year's Australian Open that Fognini, Schwartzman, Hachinov, Rublev, uh, Guido Pea, Borna Cioric, Joe Wilfred Songa, Taylor Fritz, and then like Dusan Lajovic and Marin Cilic all lost their first round matches. And look, there were four upsets this year, but 11? Like, what? And I mean, even Isovich, we'll talk about it at the end. But yeah, number 125 player in the world, he gets to the semifinals. That's ridiculous. And so, you know, coming into this event blind had its benefits. And I got to look up the context and you're just like, you know, people talk about the big three uh, hegemony that they have right now. They, they just dominate all of these events. And looking back at something like this, like I, I now understand it can get stagnant. You're like, I have not seen a new winner in so long. And during this, you know, 1998 to 2004 stretch, it was chaos. Right. I mean, even Isovich was was a wild card, number mm-hmm. 125 in the world, right? So he, he didn't get into the draw, uh, but because he was, uh, I want to say, a two-time champion at the event, they, of course, gave him a—or excuse me, no, finalist, not champion. They gave him um, a wild card, which seemed fair enough. Could you imagine, though, that kind of thing happening today? It's just hard to— it's hard to picture a wild card making a run like that. It would be as if Tomas Burdich, after you know the season's canceled, and he's like, oh, I've had nine months on my body. I didn't even miss anything. I'm actually going to go use my protected ranking and see if I can get a wild card to Wimbledon, and he wins it. That would be the equivalent, 
And no, that would blow, you know, sorry for swearing, it's going to happen, that would blow my f***ing mind. Like, that would just be nuts. And so, yeah, that, that's so funny. And so, yeah, that it's crazy stuff there. Three-time finalist on the fact check here. Yeah, three-time finalist for, yeah. So I guess then it's not quite birded. Who's the guy who's made three finals? But I guess Ferrer maybe at the French. But again, that's one final. Final, right? One like, final. If they, yeah, that's it's nuts. That, that is. He's a a massive server. I can't believe we're getting into Ivanisevich. Yeah. Well, well, welcome to see our classics, my friend. Yeah, he's a massive server who had a shot shoulder. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you could understand the ranking slide there, uh, but he was able to to get it going again. Yeah, and look, after all of that chaos, again, we end up with the 2-3 and three seed at the bottom of the draw. Andre Agassi playing Pat Rafter in the semifinals. We, they both know this is a chance for them, seriously, to take home a title. And look, again, just to quickly run through these things, some of the commentator pregame notes. McEnroe, on the broadcast, refers to uh, the 2000 semifinal between the two of them as the best, semi, or best match he's ever seen. In the last year... I just hope they can come up with something close to what they did last year because I, I keep repeating this, it, it, but it's worth it. That To me, it was the best center court match I'd seen in the 25 years that I've come here. And uh, let's hope the rubber match just lives up to something even close to that billing. John McEnroe doesn't say that lightly. He's seen a lot of matches on that court over time, so that speaks to the tension coming in. They talk about whether Agassi thinks he has a better chance because Sampras isn't there anymore. They talk about, you know, the previous Wimbledon results for Agassi, Agassi knocking off McEnroe. They have a lot of fun, um, and, you know, they talk about why Agassi is the perfect contrast to the typical big-serving type of player that Rafter is on grass and then. That just screams, just wait till you see Djokovic on grass. Like, I just want to say, hey, guys, you're, you're in for a treat in a couple of years. Just trust me. But so that was really the scene. Any final thoughts before, uh, other thoughts, I should say? Did I miss anything before we get into the match? I just think people loved watching the contrast in styles between Agassi and Rafter. And Agassi was the, the future, and Rafter was the old school. I don't know if they knew that at the time, but now looking back, we know how the game went. And uh, it was really fun to to watch that that contrast. Yeah, and I'm sure and we'll get into how it played into the tactics of this match. No, without question. And you know, last one. They showed Steffi Graf in Agassi's box, and they go, "It's been two years since she played. It feels like a lifetime ago." It's like I realize tomorrow will be two years from her last match. It's hard to believe how time goes. Again. It, it, seeing that in 2020, it, it's just funny. Uh, those are the sorts of things that you grow to appreciate. So, yeah, as you mentioned, that is really the scene. And the last thing we want to do, uh, I want to talk to you all about how they got here. And so let's look at the roads to the semifinals. You talk about it uh, for Andre Agassi, the number two seed. Uh, pretty well, you know, cruised through the draw pretty easily. Straight set wins in his first three matches. Straight set win in the round of 16 over Kiefer as well. He then has pushed two four sets in the quarterfinals over Escudé. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Again, there's a time gap there. Did I? Yeah, exactly. I appreciate it. For Rafter, uh, you know, he straight set win in his first match, four sets in the second round, knocks out the 27th seed in his third round, knocks out a pesky Mikhail Yuzny, a young name at that time, uh, in the fourth round, and then straight sets over Thomas Enquist to get to the semifinals. Who had the tougher path in your mind? Well, I think that 
I think Agassi probably had a tougher path, and I also think that uh, Agassi had a lot more pressure when Sampras came out, uh, you know, was knocked off by Federer. And I think McEnroe referred to how Agassi started struggling a little bit after that result. You mentioned Escudé, four sets. The round prior, he was he was tested. Uh, we've seen that happen before. Uh, what comes to mind is uh, U.S. Open. Um, I want to say I want to say 2014 when Kena Shikori beats Novak Djokovic in the semis, and then Roger Federer comes out. And he's like, holy crap, this is my chance, and gets blown out by Marin Cilic. It can be hard when you become the favorite and you know this is your chance. And Agassi hadn't won Wimbledon since 1992. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was something they both carried in. And the fact that Agassi probably helped by the fact of what happened in Australia, but being back on a grass court, certainly beneficial uh, for Pat Rafter. And so... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get into the match. We we talked about it at the start of set one um, with Agassi being the favorite. The way he came out, he was on fire. The first set, 6-2 to Agassi in 24 minutes. Uh, they're on serve for a little bit there, but in game number four, uh, I believe Agassi, or Agassi breaks him in game number three, excuse me, with just some incredible backhand returns, backhand winners, just on the run passing shots. And that that was the tone set from the beginning is Agassi was not intimidated by the rafter serve. He seemed to have a read on it from the get-go. Every return was dipped at the feet. And this is where I say the Djokovic comparisons come in because, A, you could tell rafter's not serving as big as he did 97, 98 back then. His shoulder just doesn't have that in him at the start of this match. But B, Agassi's on the baseline, if not inside of it. And even when he stretched, he hit some slice, you know, chip returns that still got on the feet of Pat Rafter. It it was Djokovic before Djokovic. Yeah, I I think Djokovic is the greatest. Djokovic and Murray are the greatest defensive returners of all time. But I still give Agassi the title of the greatest offensive returner of all time. I mean, let's face it, Djokovic and Murray don't exactly rip the winners and passing shots off the return, less serve and volley, so they get less opportunity. But to me, Agassi was the guy to just smoke a winner off a return more so than the other two. Uh, But you are absolutely right. Pat Rafter's second serve in this first set was getting brutalized time after time after time. It was incredibly ineffective. And uh, it, it just wasn't kicking at all. And Agassi was right there in his pocket, ripping returns. And I thought, wow, this match is going to be close. Yeah, no, I, at first I was like, what am I watching here? Is it going to be an hour-long like post-game show that you're going to be like, hey, I actually produced this when I was six, um, or you know, however old you were in 2001. And, um, but no, you look at the stats from this set, it was all Agassi. First serve percentage, Rafter hit 64% of first serves. He was above 70% for the tournament heading into the match. Agassi at 67%. In terms of winners to unforced errors, Rafter, seven winners, eight unforced errors. Agassi, uh, 13 winners, one unforced error. And so, you know, Rafter didn't even get to a break point. 
that's how dominant Agassi was on serve. He played plus one tennis when he could. He just went after the Rafter backhand immediately, and Rafter still was trying to, in terms of his returns, you know, chipping, bumping everything, trying to return in volley, but Agassi just got so many clean looks at passes, and, you know, from the get-go, I have a category that I want to do biggest points, blown opportunities. There were no big points. There were no blown opportunities. It was just all Agassi, and, you know, I I really did think at the time that this is just going to be a blowout. Like, I completely agree to you. I don't know. Did you see—what were the things, if any, you were most impressed by by Rafter? Did you see any signs of life? No. no. I mean, I thought—I <laughs> <laughs> didn't see any signs of life. Uh, chip charge to the backhand, I noticed a lot, and it was just futile. And I just thought about at the time, if you look at most of the backhands of the day— I mean, you're just you, if you're Pat Rafter, you're used to that being an effective play. But Agassi had this modern two-handed backhand where he could generate so much topspin that he got this unbelievable feel on his lobs and then also these cross-court angles that McEnroe kept saying like, "Oh, it's from another universe." <laughs> and I mean, we're used to the passing shots that Agassi was hitting. We're used to seeing those today, but it was just alien stuff at that time. Ineffective second serves was coming to the net and getting passed every time. Rafter had nothing in the first. Yeah, so in terms of my takeaways, I, I have the same list of things you just said uh, with, to try not to repeat myself too much uh, or repeat what you just said. Uh, hit, the way he mixed things up with his passing shot, I think that became critical, especially in set three, set four, early parts of set number five, where in that first set, he was determined to hit two, three, four lobs and just throw that look at Rafter. And when you have all of your passing shots working, when you are taking returns inside the baseline and against a serve and volleyer, the return is essentially a passing shot. The variety that Agassi showed is how you keep a serve and volleyer just not you keep them from gaining confidence you keep them off balance they can't learn any rhythm there's they're not gonna be able to predict things well and yeah Agassi just had Rafter moving around the court so well he changed direction really well with the plus one shot he was disciplined he even snuck in a couple of serving volleys just to keep Rafter honest to say hey don't try and serve or return in volley every time because I'm not going to allow that um and you know do I want to do this now? I'll save it for the end in terms of how I think Rafter's game would translate to modern day because that is one of the big takeaways from the matches. But to your point of something you said in the setup, the commentators in this set, just brutal towards Pat Rafter. I mean, they kept emphasizing, you know, that Rafter's fitness. Uh, he had sweat a lot and he, he had shoulder problems. At one point, McEnroe talks about, I think he's like, which is why I wonder why he'd take time off. Might as well just shoot all of the bullets out of the gun, right? Remember, John, that last year, the story of Patrick Raptor's Wimbledon was how much ammunition he would have in that right shoulder that had been surgically repaired at the end of 99. And Raptor himself said, I don't know how many bullets I have left. Well, this year, he says he's serving better, as that number of 71% would indicate. Well, he, he, and he's also backed us. He's got some more speed. He, he lost some speed on his serve. Which is why I wonder why he'd take time off. 15 you might as well just shoot all the bullets out of the gun, right? And then when your shoulder gives out on you, well, there's a time to maybe throw in the towel, not when you're still feeling good. And when he said, you know, when he said that, I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, no. 
Like, Patty, not not the take. And then after, he's like, well, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean blow your shoulder. But he talks about these things. And you, you just – the way they're setting the scene, the way that the tennis is playing out in front of you, you're right. After set one, my takeaway was Agassi's going to run away with this. Yeah, that, that was my takeaway as well. Um, and the fitness thing was emphasized and something I was watching really closely – in Australia, I know Rafter cramped up against Agassi. So what did he do? He cut the man bun. And stay tuned to find <laughs> out if that worked. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Yeah, the only other funny thing I would say was the last comment, something you harped on, and Westoff, you can play the clip here. They talk about Andre Agassi at 31. They're like, he's the only guy to win multiple majors over 30. And or the only other guy to do it was Rod Laver. And this by today's tennis standards, is an old player. 31, moving like that. 31. Can you ever recall in your time in the game a player that got better as he got older, I, as Andre I has? I don't know any player. I mean, he's he's really a first as far as I can think. I mean, Laver won a slam at 30, but uh, he was he was better than better earlier when he won the first of two. Of oh. course, Connors played longer than just about anybody, but. Connors won a couple, did win a slam at 30 and mm-hmm. was about 30 here, but I don't think he was better than he was in his earlier right. days. And it's like, this is just not going to age well for you. Like, boy, are you in for a surprise. Wait till you learn this thing called modern medicine. And again, why I'm ripping on them, they don't know that. They At that time, that was the trend of the game, so it makes a lot of sense. But in retrospect, it's hilarious. Yeah, it, it is. But again, you, you really can't blame them. And you had players emerging at younger ages and then just dissipating um, at younger ages as well. I mean, you look at Rafter's career, Borg's career, that was somewhat mental. But they did have a lot of examples of players who were like, oh, I'm 27, that's enough. Yeah, no, completely right. So again, with that backdrop, Agassi takes the first set, 6-2. Let's talk about the second set. And you... You look at flipping of the scripts, right? That's a cliche. It's, oh, the way this player flipped the script. But I can't come up with a better term. The second set is not the first set. It's just not. Rafter serves so much more confidently. He's more decisive. He's moving forward. His backhand chip returns are getting better depth. Everything worked so much better for Patrick Rafter in set two, and, you know, that's why, to me, uh, I even thought, you know, there there was a point in the second set, in the second game, it was love 15, and there's this 19-shot rally. It's the best point of the match by far, and it goes Rafter's way, and he moves in behind an inside-out forehand for love 30. I don't think he gets, or he does get the break in this game, and it was just, it was a new mindset. He was like, you know what? I am going to grind a little bit in this match. Oh, completely agree. I mean, there was a point after the first set where Pat decided, and this prevailed throughout the the rest of the match, that sometimes I'm going to stay back because this guy's passing shots are way too good. Um, And in the first game, I'm not going to say that Pat did it himself. Andre helped him out. There were two unforced errors off the second ball by Agassi. I think both were midcourt backhands. And, and Rafter breaks right off the bat. Um, but I completely agree with you there. And on the on the serve, the second serve just started kicking. And I don't know if it was all Rafter's doing, just going after it more, being more aggressive, thinking, look, if I continue to hit my second serve like I did in the first set, I just have no chance. So 
I better take more risk. And he did double fault more, but he took more risk. And also the sun came out. And when the sun shines down on a grass court, it normally gets a little bit bouncier. And I wonder if that also played into Rafter's second serve because it was much better. Yeah, look, Agassi had two break points in the next game, and Rafter used big serves and followed them to the net closely to get out of those situations. And, you know, beyond that, he really didn't face many break points throughout the rest of the set. He was just, you know, so rock solid. Agassi in the set only had those two break points in that immediate aftermath. And, you know, uh, as you mentioned, the serve got a little bit bigger for Rafter. He, in terms of percentage, it went down two points, but it was clear he was going for more. He was going for more with his second serve, taking more chances. And in this set, he hit 18 winners uh, against seven unforced errors so you know significant improvement to the 7-8 ratio from set one Agassi still a solid 11 winner for unforced error set he just couldn't get traction on the Goran serve because the plus ones were working for Goran he just again the slice backhand just got it, it it got a little bit more depth and you know you look again at the biggest points in this game that love 30 point rafter plays at in the 3-1 him serving game the 15-30 point he plays after he just comes up with a couple of good sticks to save break points and, you know, there were a couple times Agassi hit swinging volleys as his chances as just trying to take risks, and they didn't work because Garana. Uh, now, I just keep on saying Garana now, but, you know, Rafter stayed solid. He moved forward. He played confidently. He played not to, you know, he played to win. He didn't play not to lose, and that was the biggest change for me. I also would say that I think Andre was still the better player for the most part in this set especially once the points got going. And I just felt like it was a case of loose game um, at Love All in the second set by Andre, and then Rafter's serving, and you said it, a couple of really clutch points, was good enough where he never got broken. So he toughs out this second set, but I still thought Agassi was getting the better of play. Yeah, and it was in that third game, by the way, where it went uh, the put-away volley for Rafter sailed, love 15, Agassi uh, keeps a return, return low, gets a clean look at a pass, which Rafter sails long for love 30, uh, eight, two big serves for 30 all, double fault for 30-40, uh, and then, you know, big serve for Deuce. Uh, ridiculous Agassi return for add-out, but didn't matter. Two big serves, a serve and volley, and now he gets the game, 4-3-1. He solidifies, or for 2-1, he solidifies the break, uh, and it's just... You know, he was more willing to extend points, in you, as you mentioned. There's, uh, you know, some ridiculous returns from Agassi, but Rafter stayed confident. He knew that Agassi was picking on his backhand side, and at a certain point when you, be, you lose unpredictability, when it just becomes very obvious what you're trying to do, uh, players can adjust, and it was a credit to Rafter's level of play in this set that he didn't face another break point after early on in the set. He kept hitting his spot, holds at 15 for 5-2, ace on for, uh, for 40-15, forced error on the return for the set 6-3. It was just a clean set of grass tennis for Pat Rafter, but you mentioned it. Did it feel like the wrong player won the set it, yeah I, th- I think it did I think again it was the, it was like this second set hangover Agassi you mentioned he made one error in the first set mm-hmm. that first you know when he got broken in the second set it was the first loose game of the of the match but it came at this super crucial time in a best of five set match which is the beginning of the second set and Rafter just picked it up on the serve. And a lot of the big servers tend to feed off adrenaline. And when they get the break, you get extra MPH. And Rafter just got fired up 
and played really, really clutch, played some big points, but so many free points, which was key for him when he got in, the, in, a, in uh, holes in his service games. Yeah, I, I also think I have to mention this now. The amount of bump returns, you know, I thought the bump slice return, the bump slice for uh, backhand and forehand returns for Rafter, they were more effective. And certainly on a grass court, it can be an effective play when you're able to keep that ball low and keep Agassi, in this case, keep your opponent uh, uncomfortable. And certainly Rafter was able to do that. But man, you're telling me if he tries to do that now, like even if it's... A Karen Hatchinov isn't just going to load up on a forehand and send that ball just to Neva Neva land. Like, it's just, I, I can't, I, the fact that Rafter won the set, it's a credit to big serving. And, you know, I've seen a guy like Milos Ranoch make a run to a Wimbledon final. I understand the value of big serve, big plus one, serve and volley tennis. Kyrgios beating Nadal on the surface is another testament to that. But some of these bump returns, you're like, like, I just, even on grass, I feel like Alex Virov's like, really? You're going to give me this much time? Like, I'm going to make this pass 70% of the time, and you're screwed. And, like, some of the serves were even, like, 95 miles per hour. And, again, it's a prisoner of technology. And it, would these guys be better if they had grown up with modern technology in the modern game? Of course they would. I think Rafter's feel around the court is incredible. His bump slice, again, that slice return, that's the difference between Roger Federer's one-handed backhand return and so many many other guys with a one-handed backhand return but this set really hurt the argument for oh yeah these guys could hang with the best today like I'm sorry Djokovic wins this match 3-3-3 three, three, and three over Rafter uh, look you're not going to get an argument from me there Djokovic does win this set win this match easily straight sets I am going to disagree that Rafter's block returns um, I, I know we have a slight different terminology there. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that Rafter's returns um, would put him at a disadvantage in, in the modern game. I, I think that Stan Wawrinka has the same exact approach when he's returning. And I think when you, especially on the first serve, I mean, second serve, Stan's dropping back and taking a big rip. But if if you get depth on a block return or if you keep it low, which Federer's tremendous at on grass, I mean, I think that's good enough. I actually have written down. I thought you were going somewhere else with this. Rafter has really nice block returns, and he's showing a lot of patience from the baseline. Yeah, uh, he was better in this set. But just all of those backhand slices, and I know it's on grass, but uh, it's 2001 Rafter, too. It's not prime Rafter. It's not 97-98, but it's rough. Uh, that's, we'll leave that there for now. It's rough. I will say two other funny things that happened in this set from the commentary booth. Uh, John McEnroe talks about how Jeff Gordon offered him the chance to ride with him on the tracks during an NBC NASCAR promo. Uh, says it's the one place he could yell as loudly as possible. It's phenomenal. So I'm looking for, you know, that that's just like, welcome to, you know, early 2000s NASCAR, baby. Let's do it. Uh, so that was a great one. The other one from McEnroe and uh, t- uh, Ted Robinson was... There was this sunblocking incident. Like, Andre Agassi was putting sunblock on his head. And for some reason, maybe it's because they had just seen, you know, the years of Agassi with the the wig or whatever it is. And they were just fascinated by it. And, like, I mean, I've never felt younger. I was like, guys, it's just sunblock. Like, let's relax here. Picked a bad trip to forget my bathing suit and sunblock, no. didn't I? <laughs> right. Normally, that's not an issue here. Yeah, that, that's that's hilarious. They were, 
they were part- specifically fascinated by the fact that Agassi had the trainer called out to apply the sunscreen on his own face. And uh, Alex, I, I kind of, it is kind of strange, right? He, I, I assume he didn't want, and I get it. I don't, I don't think he wanted sunscreen on his hands. That can get slippery, even with an overgrip. That's not happening. Clearly, he didn't think the sun was going to be out, but it is kind of funny. Yeah, it's just incredible. Um, again, prime performance for John McEnroe. This is him at his best in the booth. Um, but with that in mind, let's talk about sets three and four. And the reason I want to talk about them together is because, A, if we don't, this podcast will go six hours, and I'm under strict instructions to keep it under three. Um, but, B, you talk about these sets, and they're pretty fairly similar in terms of clones to what we saw in sets one and two. Just in set number three, Agassi gets the break for on Rafter in the three two game uh he breaks four four two and he holds on to it and you look at the numbers in that set again rafter no break chances after having uh two break chances in set number two agassi two break chances he converts one of them he stays at three of seven for the match he was you know in this set 10 winners against three unforced errors for rafter 15 12 um and then in set number four it was just the the exact same reversal uh rafter gets his break once again pretty early in the set. He gets it in that sixth game uh, after a critical hold where Agassi did have a couple of chances to extend the game to deuce, and he got to multiple deuces. Uh, But then, you know, there's just a a couple of nine-shot rallies, a couple of, uh, you know, nine, eight-shot rallies, these intermediate types of points where Rafter would wait for the right slice because Agassi just kept patiently attacking the backhand, waiting for it to to break down. And then there's this 26-ball rally that there was multiple slices. They were down the line shots for Rafter uh, uh, on 30 all, and he goes down the line. He follows it in, and he wins the point. So they're just they're kept being these physical transformations, right? Where Rafter would be locked in, and then Agassi would just wear him down. But then Rafter would lock back in. It did feel like the pace of this match, the tone of this match, so often was based on Pat Rafter's level of play. I would agree with that because I but here's the thing. I think on Agassi's side of the net, he was thrilled with how this match was being played mm-hmm. because the the ever since the first set, Rafter was a little bit scared off, you know, from the I dare you to pass me tactic. That tactic wasn't happening. Rafter would rather stay back. And I think Andre was okay, great, I'm going to move you around, and even if I lose some of these long rallies, there's no way your gas tank can take this. This was this was Andre's world. And in the third set, that's exactly how I would think Agassi would want to win a set against Patrick Rafter, and he did it. And in the fourth set, it's the same exact tactics. I'm thinking... Pat Rafter is screwed here. This is not the match he wants to be playing, especially on his return games. He's doing so much running. And after the McEnroe propaganda about how he's going to cramp, you know, I I thought um, that Rafter's gas tank would probably become a problem. But in that sixth game in the fourth set that you mentioned, 2-3 Agassi serving, Rafter wins a ton of these marathon rallies that you would think would be right in Andre's wheelhouse, the exact kind of rally that you would think Agassi would come out on top of. 
Yeah, I, I, I think you hit it spot on there. And it's the difference between how the breaks were gotten in sets three and in set four. In set number three, uh, it was this 30-all point third game of the match. And, you know, Rafter had a chance to get that break point there. And he had clearly been having fairly, uh, fairly successful, had been fairly successful, excuse me, when he had gotten two break point. But Rafter hits an overhead. Uh, Agassiz manages to track it down and he's scrambling and he ends up winning the point for 40. 30 he holds there in that sixth game again just a couple of laced returns at the feet from Agassi to draw the plus one errors there's a double fault for add out uh, a low return from Agassi a rafter serve and volley error 4-2 at that point McEnroe says you know that was a weak game from rafter and you mentioned it you were thinking it McEnroe was thinking it I was thinking it it just felt like that match was over but yeah you then flip it to the fourth set as you mentioned and there were multiple times multiple long rallies where, you know, that six-game 30-all point, 26-ball rally, and it goes the way of Pat Rafter. That's not what the majority of this match what you'd think it would look like, but I thought Rafter routinely, when he was able to extend the shot past 10, when he was patient, because Agassi wasn't going big down the line often. Agassi, as you mentioned, was thrilled with the pace of the match and the format of the match, the point construction. He got clean looks at sometimes one, two passes a, a point, and if you give him two shots at a pass, you're just not going to win the point. That's how good Andre Agassi is. Um, and, you know, Agassi was mixing up serve locations, slice tee and uh, slice wide versus Rafter, who was playing a lot to the Agassi backhand return, maybe too often just because, you know, that's his slice out wide on the deuce, as McEnroe often said, is not his go-to thing. Um, but, but Rafter just hung in there. He stayed alive. And this is where, you know, to call him a choker throughout the first two-thirds of this match and the way he flipped the script in that fourth set— this guy's got huevos, right? Like, it was incredible mental fortitude. Yeah, he showed really, really great consistency, shot tolerance, patience from the baseline, which was just not his MO at all. But, I mean, you just weren't getting a lot of errors from the baseline from from Rafter. And there was a certain point where I was thinking, okay, this is a bad thing. He doesn't have the weapons to finish points from the back. Sampras has had a massive forehand where he could just pull the plug and be like, oh, I want to save energy. Let me just try to rope this forehand for a winner, and if I make an error, okay. Rafter didn't have that shot, especially on the backhand. He had no choice but to basically just trade it. He couldn't really attack on his backhand. He he did it a couple times in big spots, but uh, he he just hung tough. You said it. Yeah, and so, you know, in terms of the commentator highlights from these two sets, uh, one of the best ones, Robinson, uh, is complimenting McEnroe. McEnroe's like, how much money did that cost me? Again, it's an actual checked-in McEnroe, but, you know, they're talking about the match, and, uh, yeah, it's just— it's fascinating the way Rafter's able to flip the script. Uh, you know, even McEnroe says, I'm glad that Rafter's staying back. Certainly makes things, for as a fan, more entertaining. Uh, that's, you know, just a shout-out to guess what how things are going to go as you go later on. But there's also, oh, a great exchange where Agassi, at one point, he blasts a tee. Uh, you know, there's, there's, so there's a, a fishy call, we'll say, in set number four. This is the other thing I want to talk about. Um, and it was in that sixth game 30 40 rafter break point uh and there's you know that 26 ball rally agassi did not like a call at the end of it and in terms of you know getting to uh 
you know, he, he sort of lets the line judge have it. He says at the changeover, NBC shows the graphic. No, no, no. The line judge gets moved to the center tee. He's like, no, no, no. Don't take him to a more difficult line. How many calls does he have to miss before you get him off? You know, want me to find you a better line judge from the crowd. Next point, Agassi blasts a serve tee. That almost hits the lineman. <laughs> Do <laughs> you think that was uh, yeah. deliberate? <laughs> Can you imagine if Nick Kyrgios did that? Like, it would be a three-week story. He'd probably have violated probation and been suspended. It was such a bad serve tee. I mean, Alex, <laughs> what, what do you think? I mean, do, do you think it was on purpose? Because, man, I, it should at least be considered that it was because – it missed by three feet long down the tee. Yeah, I, I mean, he didn't even get warned. He does get an obscenity warning later on in set number five, but like at a minimum, if Kyrgios does that, because and maybe it's because he's lost the benefit of the doubt, although that he's lost the benefit of the doubt and Andre Agassi at that point in his career hadn't, that's a conversation for a different time. But it's just, yeah, it, it, that's the best, though, because things got feisty. Things got chippy, and again, you could tell at the end of set number four, Agassi was like, how am I still out here with this guy? What is going on? And he, you know, he wins the set. Uh, Rafter takes the set 6-2, and so we get the fifth set we deserve, and let's talk about that fifth set now. You know, maybe, again, I, I thought it was over after the third set, but after Agassi broke Rafter right away, to start off set number five, and then, you know, he gets the break in game number one, plays a couple of really smart points. It's uh, Rafter got to 40-30 in that game, but, you know, Agassi just kept dipping backhand returns low and drawing errors. Then, you know, uh, Rafter started out the game strong in that next game, but just Agassi uh, gets an on-the-run forehand pass that clips the net and drops over for 2-0, and to get that break and then to solidify it with a hold with that type of point, I, I thought game over. Look, the entire the entire match, I was thinking that this was in Agassi's court because of how it was being played, and that's just kind of how, look— here was what I here's where my mind was at. There's a difference between if you if you watch the Olympics and you watch an 100 meter sprinter versus a cross country runner. Their bodies are completely different. And serve volleyers were built like 100 meter sprinters because that's what they had to do. That quick, explosive movement over and over and over again. Rafter was built like that. Andre was built like the cross-country runner. He wanted to play from the baseline. And when they were playing these marathon rallies from the baseline, even if Rafter was coming out on top, I just thought, okay, Rafter's won two sets here, but he's going to be dead in the fifth. And the start confirmed that for me. No, I completely agree with you. And then just the way the next couple of games went, Rafter, huge hold. He goes down 15-40, hits a second serve, and just, you know, Agassi unloads, I believe, a couple of swinging volleys at Rafter for passing shot. Rafter just sticks his racket on them, gets that point, so he fights off a break point. Ace wide for Deuce. 
Yeah, exactly. Then there was an ace wide for Deuce, but another return pass combo from Agassi for breakpoint number three. He misses a return. It's a second serve return winner uh, to get to breakpoint number four then. And then it went huge serve wide on the Deuce, uh, missed return from Agassi, missed second serve return from Agassi. Rafter escapes with the hold. He then wins a 16-ball rally in the next game uh, to get to 30-all. And you think to yourself, okay, maybe Rafter's making a push here. But no, he doesn't. Ace-wide, beautiful servant volley from Andre to get to 3-1. And at that point, you think, not only did Agassi push Rafter in that next service game, but Agassi just dug himself out of some trouble. And it's not as though Pat Rafter had a bunch of breakpoint chances outside of set number four in this match. And you just think to yourself, you know, maybe this one is over. But maybe the most clutch hold for Rafter of that entire match comes in that 1-3 serving game where he double faults. He misses a half volley for love 30. And then again, serving volley for 15-30. Ace wide for 30 all. Uh, But Agassi has another break point. Uh, Big second serve from Rafter. Deuce. Another serving volley from Rafter. Overhead winner. But it doesn't matter because Agassi comes back with a beautiful pass. And then, you know, ace wide, serving volley that causes a missed lob from Agassi. He holds for 3-2. Those were the little moments when you talk about the best points. They just started to add up. And statistic-wise, you look in total for this match. The percentages don't look great for Rafter. You know, 61% of his first serves go in. That's fine. He won 76% of his first serve points. Uh, that's expected. You know, 74 of 98. When he needed a first serve, he found it. He had success on those points. But it also makes a ton of sense that he was 29 of 62 for 46% on the second serve. Uh, it really came down to those thinnest margins. And just for Rafter, he found first serves when he needed them. He served himself out of difficulty, uh, you know, so many times. Agassi had six break points in the fifth set. Uh, But ultimately, you know, let's talk now about that 4-5 game because I was shocked. John McEnroe was clearly shocked when Rafter came back to get the break for 5-all. Yeah. um, So, of course... Agassi had chances really in every single Raptor service game. It literally could have been a six love set if Agassi had converted on his break points and uh, credit to Raptor for, for the big serving, but also dug out a nice half volley on, on a couple big, on a big point when Agassi missed the lob as well. So it's five, four Andre has been cool as a cucumber the entire match um, and Rafter plays, without a doubt, the best uh, return game of the entire match. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That 30-15 point, it's a 14-shot rally. And it go once again, he, he waits for the right backhand. He takes it down the line, approaches behind it. He draws an error. 30-all point, you know, second serve backhand slice return that he moves forward behind, draws a passing shot error. 30-40 point, 12-ball rally, ends with a rafter cross-court volley at the net that he cut off as he was moving forward. He gets the break for 5-all. Those were the patterns we saw from him in sets two and set four. But even when he was losing, those were the things he were he was trying to do. And to his credit, he weathered the Agassi storm. And, you know, after Agassi gets broken for five all, what was so incredible is he actually had a break point chance at six all too, that he didn't immediately fall apart. But you could just see on his face after five all is how am I still out here? I have hit so many great backhand passing shots and he really did. Uh, but somehow Rafter just survived. 
So in that in that game when Agassi was serving it out, Raptor went to the chip charge three times, and he had kind of gone away from that play. So with Agassi serving for the match, for for Pat to be like, okay, you know this might be different. So let me put the onus on Agassi again. Agassi passed him once, didn't uh, on two other occasions, but the down the line backhand at thirty all. Had he hit that shot all match? I mean, Pat Rafter hits over a backhand and rips it down the line for a winner. I literally don't think we saw that the entire match. No, I agree. Certainly, we saw some slice backhand cross courts that got Agassi uncomfortable. But we really rarely saw Rafter hit over that one-hander. And again, this is something we both mentioned in the earlier sets. But I just want to repeat it one more time because I do think this is a key point. They don't have IBM rally tracker at the time. You know, we're not getting, what are the 8 to 12 shot rallies? But I swear to God, if you did the numbers, Pat Rafter won more 8 to 12 shot rallies than, uh, than uh, I'm blanking on the name, Agassi did, I'm thinking McEnroe, than Agassi did in this match. And again, in that game that he breaks back, there's a 14 shot rally that goes his way. There's a 12 ball rally that goes his way. He showed the patience in the biggest moments versus Andre, who I think just got a little bit tentative. It is way harder to hit a passing shot at 5-all in the fifth than it is at 3-1 in the first, or than it is at, you know, 4-2 in the, in the third. Uh, it's just, it, it's crunch time. And so it's a credit for Rafter for putting the onus on him repeatedly. And then as you mentioned, that 14th game. Uh, which is the game, you know, that 6-7 game Agassi is serving. And again, it's not as though Rafter had had a ton of break chances. He didn't have a single break chance until that 5-4 uh, serving game from Agassi uh, in the fifth set. And you just look at the patterns from uh from Rafter, as you mentioned, you know, there was a blown backhand approach, uh, but there was then a 12-ball patient rally that led to an Agassi backhand unforced error for Love 30, you know, a backhand return and volley, uh, or I should say, uh, yeah, a slice backhand return and volley drew the error for Love 40, two, you know, big shots from Agassi to get to 30-40, but you're right, the forehand slice return, Agassi's like, you know what, I've seen enough of the chip and charging, I'm going to come in, he hits a backhand to the Rafter backhand, and I mean, Rafter hits a one-handed backhand cross-court pass. That was absolutely the first one he had hit the entire match. That's good. Rafter has won the match for the second straight year in five sets. And he will play at least once more on center court. It it was ugly. Um, he told Bud Collins after the match, quote, I hit one of those ugly looping backhand passing shots I have. It usually hits the back fence, but it dropped in. Yeah, that was the right play by Agassi on match point. <laughs> this guy is not comfortable. Rafter is not comfortable hitting a backhand passing shot under pressure, but he did it. And mm-hmm. I, I felt like there was a certain point where Rafter showed so much heart and put so much pressure on on Andre that Agassi's baseline game began to deteriorate for the first time late in the fifth set. He, uh, you said, I think he got tentative. I thought he got frustrated. Um, you know, we're we're splitting we're splitting hairs here, but and a little bit panicked and surprised that Ra- basically that Rafter was staying back and being patient and asking Andre to do damage from the baseline 
Yeah, I, it's a rare th- phrase you're about to hear on a Great Shot podcast, but you're right. And I just think you talk about, you know, that that obscenity warning Agassi got. I think that was in the 5-6 game where Reverend McEnroe calls her a tattletale, the ump at the time, who told on Agassi, which is just, again, amazing. Um, but, yeah, the frustration was clear. He thought the match should be over. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this, I suppose, in a second. Well, uh, yeah, we'll talk about this in a second, but... Uh, it, it should have been. You know, it, it did feel like Agassi had six break chances, as you mentioned. If he gets the break in every game he had one, it's a 6-0 fifth set. And you talk about the rafter endurance. Maybe the funniest comment of the entire thing. Uh, Robinson on rafter going to the bathroom in between sets four and five. He goes, uh, you know. And obviously feeling all right. We saw him taking another drink out of the bottle. But, John, the fact that he had to go to the bathroom after the fourth set is actually a good sign. It means that he's not dehydrating we had bathroom analysis in this one that's how juicy uh things were getting and so uh it was just i mean it it worked clearly yeah whatever fitness whatever he you know was in the gatorade bottle that day or whatever it may be it worked on this day for patrick rafter and again we talked about the stats already but you know i guess let's go now to our final takeaways from this match and i think the one i have to start with did the right player win no, it was magic. It, it didn't make much sense. It, no, it, it really was. I, and I wonder what we're going to see at the end of, of some of these players' careers. But, you know, obviously, Sam, normally it's ugly. Normally when a player goes out and it's, it's the end, their body is battered and they don't have it anymore and they go out with a whimper. Um, we saw Pete Sampras do the opposite and go out with, with a Grand Slam title. But this was an example, I think, where Rafter had just a superhuman never-say-die mentality because it was the last push of what was uh, a somewhat illustrious career um, and, you know, a, a pretty long time at the top of the game. And it really didn't make much sense that he was able to tough this one out, have show endurance that no one thought that he had, and play every single big point perfectly. Spot on. I completely agree. Agassi, 4 of 15 on break points. Rafter, 5 of 9. He, when he had his break chances, he converted them. He came up with the long rallies when he needed to, the shot tolerance and you know physical endurance when needed. He stayed aggressive. He found his first serve on the biggest points and had success with it. Uh, it just worked. And if you're Agassi, though, yeah, you're frustrated. I don't have the. To- I actually might have the total points in this match at the end of it. I think I do. And in fact, you look total points in this match. Rafter one forty eight, Agassi one forty five. It was an either or. You know, three point difference. That feels yep. right. I actually expected Agassi to have more total points won because it just did feel like he was the guy getting into Rafter's service games. Although I suppose that fourth set was really lopsided, but. You know, this was a classic, and that it was Pat Rafter's last Wimbledon uh, that Agassi, you know, from here is, again, able to sustain and win another slam. Um, it, it it does add to the legacy of this match that Rafter had that one more win in him, and it actually led him on a jolt uh, into the back half of 2001. I'm going to talk about that aftermath in a second, but, you know, the final takeaways from this match for me, other than that, did the right player win? Uh, I, I mentioned this already, but... 
the striking similarities between Ag Agassi and Djokovic are just incredible from this one. The returns inside the baseline, just how compact everything is, the ability to change directions, the, you know, just the on-the-run prowess. That being said, there was no sliding in this one under any circumstances. Only a couple of times players got misfooted because it was like, yeah, I'm not going for that. I can't turn around. So again, a, another testament to Djokovic's ankle flexibility, I suppose. I could see Roger yeah. Federer playing there. I could not see any, you know, I, I, this gets to the bigger question. I guess you talk about the quality of tennis in this match and how would these guys fare now? I see the world where today, Agassi is Djokovic. And I never, I thought Djokovic was one of one, but it turns out there are clones to Djokovic in tennis's past. Um, you know, you've seen guys shot make like Roger Federer. What, what, a weird thing for me is going back in history, I think Rafa Nadal is so, like, I just cannot imagine anyone playing back then like Rafa plays now. You, you couldn't with yeah. the way the rackets were. I, it's, it's a lot easier to um, imagine. Federer and Djokovic just because the the heavy topspin that Nadal has is second to none even in today's game. I'll say this, though, about the Djokovic-Agassi comparison, Alex. Offensively, I 100% agree with you. Agassi, Djokovic, two peas in a pod. Defensively, Djokovic is in a different stratosphere than Agassi, which is kind of scary. But when you think about it, I mean— Andre doesn't want to defend. And was he good on the run? Yes, he was good on the run. But there was not really a sense, you know, he didn't have impeccable court coverage and he wasn't really extending rallies. But guess what? That wasn't really much of a thing back then. There was no high topspin cross court defense because people were going to the net. It was counterattack, make a passing shot. So the times were, you know, the times had changed, but I will say that that the Agassi-Djokovic similarities end with the kind of defense that Djokovic is able to play. But you nailed it, right? It's the fact that you weren't, you didn't need to do that back in the 2000s and in the 90s yeah. during tennis, and there was no need to play seven feet behind the baseline because everyone's moving forward. Now, this is what I'm saying. If Agassi was a child in the 2000s, and that's when he grew up and went to Boletari and all these things, his game would just look like Djokovic. He would be seven, eight feet behind the baseline, just tracking everything down and then stepping up on the baseline, changing directions to play offense. I just, I, I see the early model of it. Again, I said this. Right, I agree. Yeah, Agassi uh, walked so that Djokovic could run. And it's just incredible to see. In terms of the other things, you know, the shorts are awfully short and the shirts are <laughs> awfully baggy. Like, it, it's just the contrast. It's like, really? We want to see more of your thighs. <laughs> don't show me if you're ripped or not. I, I want to know, if, you know, there's still a chance for you to be drinking Coors Light on the side. Uh, the NBC graphics are just phenomenal. It's like, again, some of it looks like a video game. I would argue, you could argue video games might be better now. And again, this is just oh, yeah. in retrospect what these things are looking like. Uh, but something you pointed out. No scoreboard during the match. Mind-blowing. This was the, the number one development in live sports. The <laughs> number one, seriously, the number one thing that's different about the experience we get when we watch any sport is that at some point in time, people figured out to put the score on the screen. And it's mind-boggling to me that that was something that took a really long time. But it did. And it really makes a difference.
Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, shout out to Pat Raptors, Prince Racket. Not something we're going to see in a Grand Slam final, unfortunately, I think, in quite a bit of time. And as a Graphite user, uh, it just resonates with me that much more. But let's talk about the aftermath. And it's the, you know, home stretch here because it just you look at the implications of this sort of match. That's the reason we wanted to talk about it here on CR Classic is what was the belated effect. And let's start with Pat Grafter, as you sort of alluded to at the beginning there. Um you know, Goran Ivanisevic beats him uh, 9-7 in the fifth set of the final. Ivanisevic was the first unseeded player to win the title since Becker in 85. First wild card win was 125 coming into the tournament. Uh, you know, beat Henman in five sets the round before and Safin in four sets the round before that. Uh, but what a, what a crushing defeat for Pat Raptor, especially because he was the three seed. And, you know, Gorn wasn't a guy who had gotten over the hump at Wimbledon either. So it was the same sort of stakes. And, you know, Raptor came that much closer uh, than he, even closer than he did the year before against Sampras. And what was so incredible is you think, okay, he's got retirement on his mind. He's, you know, maybe just, done, you know, sort of just going to check out after this last crushing defeat. He doesn't. He goes 20 and seven the rest of the year. He wins both Canada and Cincy, uh, or he makes the finals, excuse me, in this for the second time of his career in both Canada and Cincy in the same season. He wins in Indy. Uh, those were the immediate next three tournaments after Wimbledon. His losses, you know, were to uh, guys like Andre Pavel and Gustavo Querton. And so he also beat Safin and Querton during that time. He got five more top 10 wins that after that result, after four top 10 wins in the front half of the season. It was like that last little resurgence. It was just like, oh, you know what? I think I still got a good three months in me. It's clear that this win, even though the loss against Goran, and you know that could have been its own CR Classic, was equally crushing. Although we're not going to talk about serving and volleying for two hours. What are we going to say? Like, yeah, he made his volley. No, he missed his return. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's the contrast that made this match so enjoyable. But it. it this did do something for Rafter. It at least helped him put a better bow on the tail end of his career. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, part of his legacy is unfortunately that he never won Wimbledon and he never won Davis Cup. And he said after he retired that he regrets that fact. But he did have an unbelievable career. He was incredible on hard courts. There, there was a season... Uh, where he won Cincinnati um, Rogers Cup and the U.S. Open. He was the first player ever to do that. So he was great on hard courts, won two U.S. Opens. Uh, and it, it just didn't happen for him at Wimbledon, unfortunately. I mean, and by the way, if you go back and you look at the highlights and Wimbledon posted extended highlights of the Ivanisevic-Rafter match, that is the most raucous crowd I have ever seen on center court. Australia showed up. Croatia showed up. It was like a Davis Cup match, and this was Wimbledon. It was kind of disconcerting to see. Um, so it was an it was an unbelievable finish as well. And by the way, even Isevich, his path. Yes, he was one twenty five. Yes, he was a wild card. He beat Carlos Moya, Andy Roddick, and Marit Safin on his yeah. way to the semifinals, where he beat Henman and Rafter. He earned it. 
there's no denying that. And, you know, for Rafter, uh, you mentioned it, that 98 season was probably his best. Uh, six titles and six finals. Canada, since the U.S. Open champ, was just the best player down the stretch of the hardcore season. Uh, but, you know, outside of that season, outside of 97, this little stretch uh, at, you know, through Wimbledon through the end of 19 or of 2001, that might be a top five stretch of his career. So he certainly ended on a bright note. And, you know, for him, it's funny because you talked about the post-match interview a little bit. Something else that he mentioned uh, that was mentioned on the broadcast was how Rafter said he wanted to go out in the Davis Cup final. And what's so fascinating is he does get to that Davis Cup final. I know uh, his home team, Australia, knocks off Ecuador, Brazil, Sweden. By the way, that team is him and Leighton Hewitt. Like, talk about a squad. Um, and then, you know, they play France, and they split the first two singles rubbers. He actually beats uh, Sebastian Grosjean on uh, a grass surface. But he and Hewitt lose the doubles point. Hewitt wins the fourth rubber to send it to a fifth. And they actually pull Rafter for Wayne Arthurs. And just, I'm sure that moment, because Arthurs goes on to lose the match in four sets, you know, that's when he's probably like, if I'm too banged up to play a fifth rubber in a final, which is clearly something he had thought about his whole life, that was probably the tipping point, right? That's where he was like, you know what, I need to deal with this shoulder. And if it's not good, and he talked about, you know, losing the motivation to play full time was part of the reasons he stepped away. But that he was pulled from that fifth rubber in the Davis Cup final, that's another one of those things, right, that is in the aftermath of this, is you wonder if he was healthy enough to play that if he wins it. Does he try to squeeze out another year, maybe another year and a half on tour? Because he was under third. It's insane, and that's a that's an awesome story. But I think we, we take for granted getting injured is awful. It is terrible. Yeah. And for Nadal to do what he has done in his career with his his foot and his knee, and then he had a wrist, like for him to just be routinely getting injured and being like, oh, yeah, I'll just rehab for four months and come back and win more slams. It, it is unbelievable, not the norm. And, uh, you know, Rafter was kind of a, a laid back guy um, off the court. And, you know, respect for not coming back less than 100% if, if it wasn't going to be in the cards. Yeah, and so he steps away, and that is certainly one of the legacies. You know, he goes semifinal, final, final, his last three years at Wimbledon. You talk about, again, his larger Grand Slam results. Um, you know, he made the fourth round there better every year from 96 to 2001. And last tangent on him, then we can go to Agassi. But let me just set the scene. Again, him being healthy not something that was frequent in his career, but he had made the fourth rounder better in every Wimbledon uh, from 1996 to 2001. Obviously, he ended the last three semifinal, final, final. Here are the quarterfinalists at the 2002 Wimbledon. Leighton Hewitt and Tim Henman, top four seeds. Then the 18 seed, 22 seed, 27 seed, 28 seed, uh, and un two unseeded players in Sa and Krejcik. 14 of the top 16 seeds lost in the third round or the earlier of 2002 Wimbledon. Tell me Pat Rafter doesn't win that Wimbledon title, if healthy. I mean, hey, sure, you could say that about any of them. Sounds fine to me, but you know what's just insane about this time? The fact that Leighton Hewitt and Pat Rafter were playing at the same time it, is unbelievable. I mean, talk about two – like it's like they're playing different sports I mean, Leighton Hewitt was a – look, Agassi was a baseliner. Don't get me wrong. And Bjorn Borg was a baseliner. But Leighton Hewitt was a grinder, and that's a completely different thing. So uh, that would have been a fun match to see. No, without, 
No, I, I agree with you. And again, that is a dynamite uh, team in terms of Davis Cup. The age difference yeah. between Leighton Hewitt and Pat Rafter is eight years. That's significantly bigger than the age gap between me and Leighton Hewitt. So I guess it actually makes a little bit more sense, you know, once you put that up. But yeah, it's, it's another testament to the fact that Rafter retired so young. You know, he was 28 years old and, you know, that this was one of his final ones. It, it, it just it sucks that we were robbed of three, four years because he's a guy who if he comes 20 years later, you know, surgery being what it is, he can probably get right, get healthy and, you know, at least play pain free, hopefully for a few additional years. But let's talk about Andre Agassi real quick, because you look at his aftermath and just uh, the way things changed for him after this one, he, he sort of fumbled down the stretch, 12 and eight the rest of the year, one in LA, made the US Open quarterfinals, but his season really tailed off after the incredible start. Now, it didn't matter because post 2001, he wins a slam title, makes two other slam finals, two semifinals, five quarterfinals, earns five more Masters titles over uh, the next uh, couple of years, you know, after those years as well. And he didn't vacate the top 10 until 2005. And you look at what he accomplished in this season. Australian Open champ, quarterfinals at all four majors, won the Sunshine Double, four titles in 18 tournaments, 45 and 15 overall. Is 2001 the best season in Andre Agassi's career? It's certainly one of the contenders, but curious your thoughts, because I have four nominees. Tough for tough for me to say. I gotta I gotta be on. I want to know what I want to know what you think on this one. Okay, I appreciate that. Well, look, I set up the questions so that I can talk a little bit more. Everyone knows that. Um, but for, yeah, for uh, so ninety four, only played three slams. Didn't do that well at them, but was the U.S. Open champ. Uh, or yeah, yeah, the U.S. Open champ. Semifinals of the Masters Cup. Uh, Canada, Paris, Masters champ, finals, Miami, five titles in 19 tournaments, 52 and 14, reached number two that season, 14 top 10 wins. That's nuts. 95, which is the leader in my clubhouse, Australian Open champ, U.S. finalist, quarterfinals of all four slams, Miami, Rogers Cup, Cincy's Masters champ, seven titles in 16 total tournaments, 73 and nine that year reach number two in the rankings as well. So that's my leader. You could also say 99 where he won French Open, U.S. Open, made the Wimbledon final and made the Australian Open fourth round. Uh, but, you know, he won five won the U.S. Open that year too in, in 99. So uh, he was he was yeah. in the final of, of the last three slams that year, um, beat Todd Martin in five sets at the U.S. Open, beat the Ukrainian Medvedev um, at the French. Yeah, and again, you know, reached number one, right, that season. Yep. And uh, five, the five titles in 19 events, it really depends. For me, 73 and 9 versus 63 and 14. So you're splitting hairs. Um, mm -hmm. But he was really good in 95, and, you know, physically that lines up. But he was really good in 1992. So my point being, you know, what it extended, he had two peaks, really. 94 through that 96 Olympics and then 99 probably all the way through to 2003 and that's just incredible you know it's so he was the trendsetter he was the first to go you know 30 uh, over 30 to show this sort of level and look he beat Rafter in the year-end finals and Rob Rodden at two and four he ends up with a 10-5 career record over Pat Rafter but you look back at this match this was really Pat Rafter's final curtain call right Absolutely. Well, the the especially the the Goran match and but his final big win, absolutely. Just like for uh, for for Agassi in the um, at the U.S. Open, his last U.S. Open. What was his big win over Baghdadis? I think so. 
Yeah. It, I know he uh, lost to Becker. I feel like I remember that match. Yeah, I think he had an, an epic victory over Baghdadis in his last U.S. Open, and that was his last big win. For after the last win that everyone's going to remember is is absolutely this Wimbledon semifinal. Yeah, and yeah, you, I'm looking at it right now for Andre Agassi. I had to look it up immediately in yeah. that. He beat Baghdadis, you're right, 7-5 in the fifth, and then lost to Becker in four. Good memory by you. That's that's called teamwork. That's uh, yes. We've been on the pod for a little bit, so we've got it rolling. So then, yeah, my last question before we wrap things up, when you look at the legacy of this 2001 Wimbledon and, you know, this match in that history as well, this was one of those awkward turning points where it's like, hey, we don't, you know, Federer's not ready, uh, that generation not quite ready the Roddick Hewitt generation also still probably a year or two away um but there are just there are a lot of talented players it's parody I, I just love seeing the parody and I that's something I miss so much at Grand Slams yeah the the parody sticks out but also the diversity in styles and that's my biggest takeaway from what we saw in this match is I don't think well look I know this doesn't exist anymore because Pat Rafters are extinct they do not exist anymore and it reminds me the only comparison I can think of is uh, a mixed martial arts comparison (laughs) when that sport John Wertheim has said that MMA is just uh or yeah no tennis is just MMA with a racket (laughs) In the early stages of MMA, you had stand-up fighters and ground fighters, and there wasn't much in between, and it was clashing clashing of the styles. Which style is better? And and that's what a match like this kind of reminded me of. Now, joke's on us because Rafter was incredible from the baseline and won the match a lot, you know, from the baseline. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel like Agassi's style really put – rafter style out of business when it was all said and done and uh we saw the shift in the game but it was fascinating to see that clash yeah the slight counterpoint would be hey maybe rafter should have been a grinder maybe he would have had more success he had so much success in this one against Agassi, right he was actually just like five years behind the curve but no it was a bridge match certainly you didn't you don't see that relentless serving and volleying from too many players today and the ones who do it you know it's a very thin margin to be successful you have to serve like an isner like a rayonich and with all due respect to pat rafter and 2001 he didn't serve like that well, when you serve 140, there's no time to get to the net. It's actually not a good way to serve volley. So uh, I actually loved watching Rafter mix up his his spots here, mix in the body serve more than I've really seen a modern player do it, and uh, give himself time to come to the net. It was it was great to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then with that in mind, Gil, again, thank you so much for not only recommending this match, but taking the time to chat with me. I have to give you a chance for our listeners who don't know where to find you or stuff. They're intrigued by your Monday match analysis poster in the back, which again, has looked so crisp throughout the duration of this. Uh, Where can they find more of your stuff? Uh, Easiest way is to search Gil Gross. That's Gil with two L's on YouTube. My channel will pop right up. You could also search Monday Match Analysis. That'll work as well. I'm also, uh, there is a podcast version. Some of what I do is visual, but podcast version on Spotify, Apple, and you can follow me on Twitter at Gil Gross with an underscore. Yeah, well, Gil, don't be a stranger. Stay safe. Stay you healthy. Too. This, stay this safe. Was an absolute, of course, this was a blast. Hey, I had a blast as well. I was going to use that exact word. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> great, great minds. Again, we're in synchrony. We can go play yeah. the macro a set of doubles if it was safe, you know, social distance doubles, but uh, and see how it goes. But <laughs> again, Gil, thank you so much. Take care, and uh, hopefully we'll chat with you again soon. My pleasure. Talk to you again soon. Awesome.